Welcome to All In Uncensored with Ryan and Brian. Hey everyone, welcome to All In Uncensored with Ryan and Brian. This is, what is it now? Episode, episode 12. Episode 12. Yeah. And today we're going to be bridging the gap with Aaron Paker. Aaron Paker's a good buddy of mine, one of my best friends. Known him for, what, 30 some years Close now? Close to 30 years. Close to 30 years now. And uh, the title of this episode is Love, Life, and Law. I like it. This is going to be rad. Love, Life, and Law. Yeah. So what we're going to do, um, Aaron's an attorney at law, and he specializes in elder care law. Let me guess is, he loves life too. Yes, he does. Absolutely. Yep. So some of the topics we're going to touch base on in this episode, uh, we're going to ask, we're going to get to know who you are as a person. Okay. Um, then you have a Trinity approach to life and work. That's going to be really interesting to talk about. Um, mental health and the importance of normalizing conversations around that. Because we all struggle sometimes with the high stress environment of our career paths. So this is going to be really good info for our, our viewing audience. Um, finding balance in business between worth and generosity. That one really struck me. So I'm excited to talk about that because you uh, made a point about what Ryan and I go through with what we do in our sales business too. So that's really good. And then finally, um, the, the vision you developed to get to where you're at today. So with that, tell us about yourself. Well, I'm a husband, dad, uh, elder law attorney, uh, mental health person, I guess you would say, <laughs> you know, de dealing with a lot of mental health issues myself, um, Seahawks fan, yeah, meat smoker, yeah. amateur uh, hack on a golf course. I mean, I'm not sure there's much else to say other than that. You, you've seen the golf course. So you know how bad that is. So. But, yeah, but some of the some of the most amazing shots he's ever made. He took a five-wood off of a par three that was like 120 yards, skipped it off the water, up onto the green, within three feet of the hole, and that's buried the hole. That's talent. That, yeah. That's, that's not skill. That's the most talent. insane shot I've ever seen. Hey, <laughs> however, however it gets there, it doesn't matter. Right. Bounce it off trees, bounce it off the water. Yeah. Yeah. So, how did you and I meet? We met at orientation before we started our freshman year of college at UPS. University uh, of Puget Sound, go loggers. Go loggers <laughs> in August of 94. So, it'll be 30 years this 30 year. 30 years. Three decades. Three decades. How did we meet? We met when I walked through this door and <laughs> Brian told me that uh, I had to try to squeeze in here with you guys. It is a tight squeeze. Yeah. You know, what, what, do we, what did uh, Sean call it? Cozy? No. Uh, I don't remember what Sean called it, oh. but it, it's, it's nice and cozy. So yeah, Aaron and I went to college together and we were actually in the same dorm and became really good friends. There was a small group of us and uh, we just stayed friends through all the way out. And then after school, we both ended up staying in the same area and the rest is history there. I mean, one of my best friends in life and we're excited to have him on the show today. I'm really excited to have you here. The only person other than my wife who's ever put up with me this long. <laughs> <laughs> so Aaron, um, you, how did you get uh, from, cause you had a pretty diverse background in college. Like you were, proficient at organic chemistry and the sciences and math and all that stuff. And you went from that to getting a master's degree and teaching from that to now going to law school and passing the bar exam. It's an, it's absolutely insane 
like how much talent you have with that, but how did you get from point A to point B? It, it was a long journey. Um, all through high school, I wanted to be a genetic engineer. I had a nephew who died from, uh, at a very, very young age, just a few months from genetic disease. I was sure I wanted to do that. I got to college, I realized it's eight hours a day of staring at a microscope, and I knew I would throw myself <laughs> in traffic if I had to do that, especially with my ADHD and things like that. Um, was gonna try it anyway. I became a Christian after I did try to throw myself off a building. That's a whole different story. Um, went on, went out, met a little kid in the, in the, Salishan area, so really low government housing, just out of kindergarten told me that he was going to drop out of school because he already knew he was going to be dead or in jail anyway. Jesus. In kindergarten? It, he had just finished kindergarten. That fall, I uh, I changed my major, dropped every, well, I, I kept my major, I dropped my minor, started taking prereqs and became a teacher, did early childhood for 14 years, five years special needs. Um, it got to be a bit much between the bureaucracy and the, the people who were sure that a young guy who wanted to work with little kids must be a pedophile and all that fun stuff that comes with it. Um, decided my, my next job was either going to be a chef or a paralegal because I needed to get off unemployment. And those were the two things I, I found interesting. But with a wife and two kids, chef wasn't gonna do it and, until I made it as you know, the next Gordon Ramsay. <laughs> so I became a paralegal and wanted to work with kids. God said, nope, that's not going to happen. Wound up in elder law, um, fell in love with it on my second time around. My first time around, I didn't like it, swore I'd never do it again. Wound up at another elder law firm, started doing the Medicaid and just fell in love with helping the people who really need it. And that's really speaking to kind of a theme, overarching theme of our show is that servant's heart mentality, servant leadership. And you really kind of, really, you've dealt with youth, I mean, really young people and then really old people, like, and you get to help people and needs with both of those demographics, which has been really huge. I probably valuable that you get to do that. But I really love the, the mindset of the servant leadership that you have with that. Well, it sounds like you just have a love of people in general. Uh, I mean, when you're absolutely. helping the little kids and then you flip over to the the elderly law, like, that's the gamut. Uh, absolutely. And, and the interesting thing is I was never a people person uh, until that day on the rooftop. And that's when my whole world became focused around love and loving people. Mm -hmm. um, and that's, that's kind of what that whole Trinity thing is. Uh, I don't know if we're ready to get into that, but go for it. Yeah, go for it. You know, for me, I struggled a lot. I became a Christian late in life. People are talking about this three gods and or th one God and three people, and none of it made any sense to me. Uh, I couldn't figure it out. I tried relating it to how I'm a father and a husband and a business person and a friend, and I have these different roles I have to play, and that didn't really feel right though because it's me trying to change who I am to fit the situation. And with God, it's each of the three is a perfect wisdom and love and guide and, and all these things. But there's the overarching father, there's the interpersonal Jesus interacting with people, and then you got the Holy Spirit that's the intrapersonal guide to how you deal with things when you're not around people. 
And so I started thinking, you know, how does that relate to my life? And my, my core value is love. I had always felt like I was unlovable. I didn't love myself. Nobody else could love me. And then God loved me. And I started to realize it's, it's my job in life to love on people. So I took that idea of, of a trinity and how can I relate that to my core values? So I have, you know, the, the Jesus aspect, the interpersonal is, is love everyone. If I'm going to interact with somebody, I'm going to treat you with respect. Even if I disagree with you, I'm going to argue with you, but I'm going to do it respectfully. I'm not going to call names. I'm not going to shout you down. I'm not going to try to put you in tears. I'm going to treat you the way I would want to be treated. And then I'm, I'm in a BNI group. I learned giver's gain. So that's how I do the intrapersonal. How am I going to build my business? I'm, I'm going to give to other people and eventually it will come back to me. But I don't care if you've got a million dollars and, and I could get you to give me a whole lot of it. If you don't need my services, I'm going to tell you, don't give me your money. If you're somebody who I can refer a customer to or a client to, I don't care if you're not going to refer back to me because at some point down the line, it'll come back. So that's the, the second piece of that trinity. And then the overarching, this is the whole universe, the, the father aspect is, it's a African word, Ubuntu, and it means I am because you are, or I am me because you are you and we are we. And it's the idea that each of us who we are as a person is created by all the people we interact with. So if I interact with Brian and I'm crappy to him and then he goes home and he's crappy to his wife and she's crappy to all of her friends, we spread the crappiness throughout the world. It's Eventually like, it gets to everybody. It's like dropping a pebble in a pond and the ripples yep. are just going out and touching it, every edge of it. It's the butterfly effect. So yeah. when you when you start to think of it as everything I do, everything I say, every interaction I have is going to affect every person in the world, you start acting with more love because that's what you want to put out there. That is rad. Well, I, I, what hits me there is, you know, you say if you're if you're bad to Brian, but the opposite is also if you're great to Brian, he goes home and treats his wife and his wife treats her friends. And like the same ripple effect happens negatively right. or positively. And that's that's huge. I also love what you talked about with the giver's gain. I just read a book. It's called 24-7. It's a mortgage book. And the guy talks about take your clients and go deeper with them. You know, do they have a will attorney? Do they have a will set in place? Well, now you're going to be a homeowner for first-time homeowners. You're going to be a homeowner. Let's get let's let's make sure that you're set up in case anything happens. Do you have a CPA? Yes, you do have a CPA. Rate them on a scale of 1 to 10. If they're not an 8 or 8, 9 or 10, would you take a referral? If they are an eight or nine or 10, I'd love to talk to them because I would love to send people their way if they're taking clients. Um, giving, the book was all about giving. You know, it's he still does home loans, but it's giving referrals out. And he said, uh, the book was very recently written in 2022. He gave away $2 million worth of referrals. Does he get all those back? No, but it's all about giving. He knows that will come back maybe not at the same level but it's coming back and it's that's a really cool mentality yeah that's just absolutely cool and that and it serves you it can only serve you in your personal life but in whatever endeavor you do whether it's just interpersonal relationships with other people or on a business level so i mean with the level of care that you have to provide your clientele i mean they're in a sensitive time of their lives where 
um, they got to start thinking about end of life planning and all this other stuff. And that's really, really tough for families to talk about. So to have that mindset to deal with those people, dude, and you know, attorneys like mortgage guys kind of get a bad rap. You know, you guys are just ambulance chasers and all this other stuff. And you're trying to, you're trying to nickel and dime people to death, but that's not who you are. You, you said it, your goal is to help people be better. And I kind of think that speaks a little bit. And I mean, we're going to jump around a little bit, but I'm finding the balance between worth and generosity. So how, because I know you're like very giving person, but how do you also avoid not going broke by being so generous? Uh, this is a lesson my boss, uh, I've, I've been at the same law firm for coming up on nine years now, and my boss is finally getting me to understand this. You know, I've, I've finally raised my prices for, I think, the first time since 2016 when I was still in law school. Um, and constantly I'm, I'm meeting with these people I'm saving them hundreds of thousands of dollars sometimes a million million and a half dollars and I'm giving them discounts because I feel bad about charging half of what other attorneys that do what I do charge and he finally got me to understand if the people I'm saving that much money for pay me what my work is worth then that frees me up to have the ability to do pro bono work or discounts for the people who can't afford what I do. So when I started thinking about charging the people who have the money what I'm worth, valuing my work instead of wanting to give it away and just help everybody for free, that gives me the ability to help the people who really need it and and who can't get by life without that cheaper free work. And they'll respect you more for it. Yep, absolutely. It, that's a that's a concept that's hard to get even through our heads as lenders. Sometimes we want to give away the farm on a on a loan, but what is your worth? You know, you have people shopping you until the last hour, and um, you, you have to really sit back and you know what is your worth to them. Yeah, that's that is a tough one because you want. On the one hand, we all have, I wouldn't necessarily call it selfish reasons, but survival needs, you know, we live in a capitalist society, so we've got to pay our bills and in order to pay bills, we have to have enough income coming in. So, you know, when I feel like a client is trying to drive me down and discount what I do, I start feeling bad about that. Like, I'm like, what am I doing? And then when I start following that rabbit hole and and trying to chase it all the way down to nothing, like there's so many other people that need my help. Why am I spending time with this one person who's trying to marginalize what I do when there's all these other people I can help? So to your point, Aaron, it's really important, especially in the sales environment to really understand what your worth is and just know that if you're leading with the right character and if you're leading with the right mindset and the servant's heart, leadership mantra, then that's where you provide the value. And so then you should be paid accordingly. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that's been a really hard lesson for me. I've, I've always believed that if I just give everything away, the universe will take care of me. But when I give everything away, I can't take care of the universe. There, there's always going to be those people I want to help and I can't because I haven't brought in enough money. The, the firm needs me to bring in money. I can't give that time away when I want to or need to. And I'm learning that through my morning readings. Um, so I've been doing this miracle morning now. I think I'm on my 16th day in a row of getting up at 5 a.m. and 
going through some meditation, affirmations, reading, vision, exercise, and journaling or scribing. Um, one of the things I'm really learning about that um, is I just lost my train of thought. Dang it. Can you just remind <laughs> This is why it's uncensored. So just remind me what you were telling me just before that. I was, I was talking about always thinking that the universe would take care of me if I just gave everything away and then realizing that I can't take care of the universe if That's I don't have stuff. Okay. So some of these books that we're reading, it talks about in order to help others, you have to first help yourself. So if I'm not doing this routine every day and trying to exercise an, an amount of self-care, um, how am I going to be able to perform well for my clients and others? How am I going to be able to give to them and serve them better if I'm not serving myself first? And it kind of seems counterintuitive because initially I'm thought, man, I'm being selfish by prioritizing myself first. But really, that's really important to do that because then that just sets you up for the rest of the day to be able to be a benefit to others. Get your mind right and your grind tight. <laughs> yeah. Can't get your grind tight unless your mind's right. Yeah. So speaking of self-care, you did touch on mental health and the importance of normalizing conversations around that. Can you speak more to that? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up uh, undiagnosed, unmedicated, bipolar, ADHD, OCD, or as I like to call it, CDO, which is alphabetical the way it should be. Um, and, and a big part of why it was never diagnosed or treated is because I didn't want to be a burden on my family. I didn't want to admit that I had these issues that made me less than everybody else. And so the stigma of you, you don't talk about it, you don't admit it, you don't show it, you, you find a way to hide it, got me to the point where when I finally became a Christian at 21, trying to jump off of a nine-story building that was already about my 12th attempt at suicide, I had absolutely no value for myself or anybody else. And so much of that was because I couldn't talk to anybody about it because I didn't want to be a burden on them. I didn't want them to think less of me. So I make it my mission to get out there and talk to people about my mental disabilities and my mental illness and the, the meditation and the things that I've done. And as stress builds as an attorney, which I've heard the only people that are more likely to have uh, addiction issues and, and mental health issues than attorneys as entrepreneurs like you guys. Good luck with that. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, Thanks, man. But but there's so many people, you know, I read a statistic that something like 70% of attorneys say that the stress of the job negatively impacts their mental health. But 95% of them say that the stigma is so great they would never admit to their own struggles. Mm -hmm. And if you don't talk about it, you don't get the help you need. So I, I get out there and I start talking to these groups and I tell them, you know, when I interview for a job, I'm very upfront. I tell people I've got these things, I'm dealing with them, but I might need a mental health day once in a while. I might need you to put up with me being a pain in your butt because I'm in a bad mood and I'm angry and I'm having all these anger issues and you're going to have to deal with it if you want me to work here. And, you know, I get asked, well, why would you tell them that you're, you're not going to get the job? And my response to that is, when I hit it, I was on the top of a building looking for an answer nine stories down. And no job, no boss, no paycheck is worth more than my health and keeping me off of that building. I would rather have a crappy job and a crappy paycheck, but no, I'm going home to my wife and my kids than have a great job with a great paycheck 
and have them find me at the bottom of the building. Yeah, so that that support around you, not just from home and your friends, but having that support in a in a work setting is really important too. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's you know, kudos to you for bringing that awareness to those around you. I think that's just a huge thing. And it doesn't yeah, it it, it there is a stigma about that, you know. I think Ryan and I have started opening up to each other more and more like There'll be days where I say, you know, like, dude, I'm just having a crap day today. Like today. Yeah. Today was, we called it, we felt like we're both hurting cats today. It's just, it comes in twos and threes and, you know, we've just had to find a way to laugh about it, but we're like, you know what? We've got Aaron coming in to do a podcast show. All that other stuff doesn't matter. Um, so it's in a way, this is kind of like hitting the reset button with you today. So you're pulling us out of a slump, honestly. Good to hear. Had a flat tire this morning, got to the office, just found out, pulled my laptop out of my bag. I had my son's laptop. Can't do any work here. <laughs> but we have you. And honestly, that's really exciting for, for me, and I know it is for Brian. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I've been wanting to get you on the show ever since we started it, so I'm glad we are able to. Um, so how did you go? I mean, you touched on a little bit. So how did you have the vision? You talk about you know, going from the vision of wanting to get into law and identifying elder care law, how did you go from being a paralegal to going, working full-time, being a full-time dad and husband, going to night school and passing the bar at the top of your class? And then actually tell us a little bit too about some of the awards you've recently received. So it, it really wasn't a choice that I could make. I, I found out pretty early on as a paralegal that I am not a good paralegal. As soon as I decide I know more than the attorney supervising me, I am not good at being instructed, especially when they're giving me bad advice or they don't want to listen to my advice. Same reason I never could have gone in the military. I would have mouthed off the wrong person and never been seen again. Um, so, so I had this background, though, of trying to manage my mental health. So. I knew how to make myself go manic. I knew how to make myself calm down in rough situations. I never sleep, you know, I'm, I'm up to five or six hours of sleep a night now, which is five times what I got back in college. So getting through it wasn't hard from the aspect of what am I going to do with no sleep? I get up at four in the morning, go work a seven or eight hour shift at, at the law firm, go up to law school until nine, 10, 11 o'clock at night. 40 mile drive home, help with chores and homework and see my kids sleeping. I didn't see them awake from Sunday night until Friday dinner uh, for the first couple of semesters. But I knew how to amp myself up. I knew that nothing that law school threw at me would be worse than things I'd already gone through in my life. There, there was nothing that was going to be harder than what I'd already overcome. So you know, I actually felt worse for my wife. She was the one trying to be a working single mother while I was gone all day, every day. Um, but your, your wife, Kendra, is a saint, by the way. She, she, she's put up with me for she's close to 25 person. years now. She's got to be a saint. And she went to college with us, too, by the way. Oh, great. Yeah. But, you know, the this is one of those other things. You know, I talked about the the negative things that come with mental illness can also be turned into strengths. Um with my ADHD, I wasn't on any medication when I was studying for the bar. And at one point, I remember sitting at my kitchen table or, or dining room table, my daughter who was eight and, and has recently been diagnosed with ADHD is sitting on my lap, bouncing up and down, having me comment about the My Little Pony show that she's watching. And I'm playing Candy Crush on my phone. 
and my bar study program <laughs> is playing a video at three times normal speed. Yeah. And that's how I studied for the bar. And I wound up in like the 90th or 97th percentile of scores for the bar because my brain focuses on that many things at once. And so all of these things that people tell me, you know, you're less than because you've got this ADHD, you can't focus. I can focus just fine. I can either hyper focus on one thing or I can observe every single thing going on around me all at once. And still learn. And still learn. Um, so that was the only way I got through the bar exam. When, when you're 40 years old and you're getting two or three hours of sleep at night, you don't function unless you can function universally all at once. Yeah. So. And then you went from passing the bar on your first try you know, at the top of your class to um, now you're a partner in your firm. I'm a partner in the firm. Um, I I manage all of our Medicaid planning, all of our probates, you know, the really happy times in people's lives. I wrote a book on Medicaid. I've given away about 1,100 free copies in the last year, year and a half. Um, last year, because of the work I do with seniors and giving away the book and all of the mental health s- stuff that I do, uh, King County Bar Association named me Outstanding New Lawyer for 2023. I got this really cool little uh, glass vase thing. I was expecting a, a piece of paper that had my name on it that didn't even come with a frame, and, and I got this really cool vase. So it was it was exciting to be recognized for what I'm trying to put out there in the into the universe. But the important thing is you weren't going out seeking that. You just went out and served others, and now people are recognizing you for that. So yep. I want to make that distinction because, you know, some people are going out to seek praise and accolades. That's not who Aaron is. Aaron's all about going out and trying to help other people get better every day and not asking for anything in return. And I think that speaks to your character, man. I'd like to dive a little deeper in the self-awareness because I think so many people struggle with being self-aware. You, you named a, a bunch of different things. You know, you've struggled with ADHD. Um, how, how, did, how did you make that switch of, I mean, you talked about even being young. Um, where did that come from, your self-awareness? I think a lot of it, you know, as I become a parent, I realized my my older siblings weren't the demons I thought they were when I was little. But as <laughs> as the little kid that was five years younger than the youngest of my older siblings, it seemed like everything they were doing was adding stress to my parents. And so no matter how crazy I was outside of the house, at home, I had to be the perfect child. So I wouldn't add stress to my parents. So early on, all the little weird things that I was noticing, they, they only happened outside of the house. And the only way to do that was to find a way to shut it off when I got home. And then as I got older, you know, starting in probably fourth or fifth grade, I was getting in three to five fist fights a week at school, wow. all the way through high school. And but I could shut it off when I got home. I, I would just shut down the emotion, shut down the anger. I'd be fine until I left the house again. Then I got to UPS, you know, 30 years ago, and I realized if I'm getting in three to five fights a week in college, I'm going to be in jail. So I had to find other ways to deal with it. So it started out, you know, instead of hitting people, I hit brick walls and dislocated all my fingers and put them back in place. But but then eventually I started doing meditation and biofeedback where I, I just sit and concentrate on what am I feeling now? How do I manipulate that until I learn how to push myself manic or push myself depressed and keep myself kind of balanced in the middle. And 
it was because I had to do it. I'm, I, I was going to wind up dead or in jail if I didn't learn how to control it. I didn't want to use medicine. So I had to adapt and figure out a way to do it. And then as I got better at it, it served me well. You know, I could be in the middle of a firestorm when we were working security at the college campus and I'm the calm one just walking through all the brawls and everything, telling people to pipe down and go back in your house. I've been there, done that. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like that whole self-aware portion also has to do with opening up to others. You know, as soon as you yeah. can finally be aware of your emotions and learn how to um, control those, it's a lot easier to open up to others to help not only not only to talk about your, your personal feelings and how to get better for yourself, but then to help others. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think that comes down to that emotional intelligence. You know, my coach has been working with me on this and um, dude. Yeah. Like when you start like really like doing a deep dive on that part of yourself, that's, you know, it, it can be a sensitive topic, but I'm really glad that you're bringing that up in this show because um, there's a lot, I'm sure everybody to some degree struggles with some form of depression or mental illness, you know, and the fact that you've been willing to open up on the show about that is huge, man. Well, I think after COVID too, the oh, depression yeah. por portion of everything has just gone absolutely crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. Awareness, first of all, people are more aware that depression is out there, but I think there's more depression out there ever since we were locked inside for a few months. And I'm not a doctor or anything, so I don't really know what I'm talking about. Just observations. Yeah. <laughs> well, and then I think, uh, you know, people are probably using negative behaviors and habits to uh, as coping mechanisms. So, you know, like part of my issue, you know, I became type two diabetic diagnosed like right around COVID. And a large part of that was I turned to food for comfort, you know, in times of solitude and cause I didn't know how to be present with myself. And so I'm doing this. Um, I talked to Aaron about this and, and you too, I'm doing this shadow work journal where I have to like go peel back the layers of the onion of my inner self and like get to the root of wh why I'm having some of these challenges as an adult male here well, what's the root cause of that? So once I examine that and kind of heal that part of it, then I'm hoping that that will help me, you know, not not I mean, take the feedback off my face and like be true to the health that I want to be, you know, mm -hmm. that, that's the tough part. But um, so Aaron, what's uh, what do you hope for the future for like, as you like, you know, forecast goals and planning, um, what what's the vision that you have for what you do? I think the big thing, you know, I, I do these monthly seminars and stuff beyond getting to the point where I'm finally out of debt and don't have a negative net worth because of all the loans for, for law school and everything. I think my personal goal as an elder law attorney is to spread awareness. I talk to so many people that probably could have been on Medicaid five years ago, probably should have been on Medicaid five years ago. And I sit down to talk with them and the first words out of their mouth is, I already know you can't help me. I looked it up on the Google or my neighbor Bob told me I don't qualify. And if more people understood what's available, there would be a lot less people forced into nursing homes or forced into living on, you know, cat food or whatever i mean that's an exaggeration but not much of one no no you get a lot of people losing their homes losing the ability to have any kind of freedom because nobody bothered to tell them that there was help available well it's amazing how much people listen to people that are not professionals 
we deal with the same thing. Oh my gosh. You know, with especially with first time home buyers, they're talking to professionals like lenders or real estate agents and then they go talk to their uncle Bob and uncle Bob says, "This is a terrible time to buy a house." Well, let's flip that script a little bit. Is it a terrible time to buy? Never, really, in history. Real estate's always gone up. Tell me, is there ever a time that it's terrible to own a house? The answer is probably going to be no. Like it, It's yeah. always a great time to own a house. I think every professional industry deals with Uncle Bob's telling them bad information. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. Or and just what they were taught. Not necessarily bad. It's just what they were taught. Yep. And it, it's not even just that either. It's, you know, you were talking about the bad rep that attorneys have, which, you know, I always tell people lawyers aren't as bad as the jokes that make us out to be. It's just the 99% that make the rest of us look bad. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I'll, I'll sit down with a family and one in particular stands out from about a year ago. I basically told this guy his wife was dying. They had about a million dollars left. He was about to go into uh, a care situation where it was going to cost him probably $15,000 a month to take care of himself. And I basically laid out for him, you're going to do this work right now. You're going to come back and do this work when your wife passes in a couple of months. And then we're going to do this work after that. And I quoted him a price. It was like 15, 20,000, something like that for all three bits of work over the course of a year, year and a half. And I told him, I'm going to do this work. That million dollars you have, you're going to protect 100% of it other than what you pay to me. And his daughter said, that's way too expensive. Dad, we're leaving. And pulled him out of my office and took him home because I was I was asking for too much. I was just trying to scam him out of his money. And you were going to save him like 15 grand a month. Yeah. Well, I was yep. going to protect the full million and then save him 15000 a month every month for the rest of his life. Your but, fee is covered my a month and a half. too much. Yeah. I was a scam artist, and and Dad, we're going someplace else. I'm I'm sure this this got to be a, a scam. Yeah, and I think that uh, you know, in our business, we face some of that too. There's like this thing called sticker shock. So I was like, well, wait a minute, I didn't didn't realize that it was going to cost this much or this much. But then, you know, it comes down to that education part. You really got to lay it out. But even at times when you do that, they're they're still going to just throw their hands up and walk away from me. And there's not not much you can do about that. But um, so. The book that you published, Aaron, how can we help you uh, spread that word and get that out there? Obviously, we'll provide a link, um, whatever link that um, they can go to to get a copy of the book, we'll provide in the, the show notes here. But how how can we get your message out there and what can we do to help you? So the book is available for sale on our law firm's website under products. Um, I just recently started selling it. I was just giving it away and then I realized how expensive it is to have books printed. Um, I also, once a month, I do these seminars, uh, usually the third or fourth Saturday of the month. I give away free books to anybody who shows up for that. Anybody who calls me to do uh, a consultation, even if they don't hire me, they walk away with a copy of the book. If they want copies for their neighbors, I'm giving them out. You know, I'd rather get them out there in the universe than have them sitting on a shelf in my office because nobody wanted to pay 10 bucks for it. So Right. And I know you had expressed uh, an interest in one point, at potentially even starting your own podcast show and doing an informational series about this, about what you do to help people. Uh, a- absolutely. It's, it's one of those things that in the next year, two years, I would love to get started on something like that. At this point, um, I'm still growing my, my sh- portion of the firm fast enough. 
I don't I don't know how you guys as busy as you are find time for this. Um, right now I'm I'm uh, chasing myself in circles just trying to keep up with work and but it's something I would love to do. You know, I, I was an educator for 14 years. I love teaching people about this stuff and it's it's a topic that so many people need. I mm-hmm. would love to do something where I can get it out there where I can have churches available to, hey, go watch this, and they'll show it for their aging uh, congregation. Or, you know, the senior centers can show it periodically for the, the people who come and hang out. And I we, can't do that till I get it taped. Yeah, we, we have a lot of real estate friends in our community, and for those real estate friends that are listening, um, a lot of agents in our market represent that demographic of people that need that kind of help. And a lot of like I gig Harbor always comes to mind because it's a high, high net worth, affluent area. And there's a lot of older people that are in retirement who have these amazing estates, then they're trying to preserve wealth and they could benefit by talking to somebody like you couldn't. Uh, absolutely. Especially the, those folks that are house rich and money poor. I get a lot of those. And, and if we can protect that house, so they don't have to sell it to get the money to pay for the care. It gives them a legacy they can pass on, or it gives them a, a place where they can pull out a reverse mortgage or a line of credit or something and, and keep themselves going without just winding up destitute in the process. Yeah. Who's your ideal client and when is the best time for them to reach you? So for the law firm as a whole, you know, you were talking about this holistic, do you have the right CPA, all of that. My boss is amazing. He's from India. His his big mantra is, I come from the third world where almost everybody takes their last breath at home where they've always slept. Why does the richest country in America have 75 or 70% of their people not dying at home? Mm-hmm. So he's trying to change the way people think about, uh, plan for, and live out their retirement. So he does this very holistic, we look at health and housing and finances and legal and family and bring it all together. Um, so for him, it's anybody who's getting towards thinking about retirement. With with my work in Medicaid, uh, what I usually tell families is as soon as you get that diagnosis of dementia, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, before it gets bad and you're bleeding money at ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 a month, before it gets to the point where you can't remember who your kids are, if you start the planning, then I can save you a whole lot more money and I can give you three, four, five options for how to get there instead of here's your one option and it's going to cost you everything you have, but we'll get you help once you're out. Do you think there's an ideal age of people that, that should start the conversation with you? The conversation with my boss um, should start as soon as retirement is something that you're thinking about. Mm-hmm. You know, when you're, when you're first starting out, everybody who's ever started a job at 18 or 16 should already be thinking about retirement. But when you're actually thinking it's on the horizon, that's the time to talk to my boss. For me, age isn't necessarily that important. Most of my clients, I would say, are 65 to 103. Probably the average is 85 to 90 for a lot of the work I do. But I've had clients that were 59 and already advanced uh, Alzheimer's. I've had people who were 45 and got in a skiing accident and they're quadriplegic, you know, there, there's no magic number when life is going to, to turn on you. It's that diagnosis date where you're really yeah. looking at and you need to dial in 
yep. everything. Yeah. Or, or those sudden things when those happen, you know, don't wait until you're in rehab. You know, I get so many people that call me and say, my dad had a stroke. He's been in rehab. I know it's Thursday night, but they said on Friday we're doing a care meeting and he's going to private pay on Monday. What do we do? And the, the thought in my head is call me three months ago. Yeah. And the answer I give is we'll get in here and we'll figure something out. But, you know, once that stroke happens or the f- fall with a broken hip or whatever it is, you don't wait until the hospital and the rehab is done and you're going to start paying that $15,000 a month to the nursing home to, to call and get help. I think that's hard as humans to, to they think they can do it on their own and they think they know best. You explain to your client where, where the daughter was in there and she thought she knew best. When in realistic terms, it's going to cost them a lot more money than your fee. Right. Yeah, that's always tough with family because family is, they're really trying to come from a good place, but they just, they're not the expert in, in that topic. And they always try to have the best interest in mind. But that's where you got to put trust in professionals like we are, right? And that's, again, how you conduct yourself in business is going to allow people to be able to trust you. Absolutely. You know, if you're going to act like a a lawyer, people are going to treat you like a lawyer. If you're going to act like a human being, you know, I've been training my kids. My kids will never tell you their dad is a lawyer. I've told them from the beginning, lawyers are the people you tell jokes about. Attorneys are the people you go to to get your butt pulled out of the fire. I'm an attorney, but I know a lot of lawyers. Good to know. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Love that distinction. So let's do a couple of fun questions just off the cuff. What is your favorite food to cook? I was going to ask that also. That, that's a tough one. I, I love cooking just about anything, but I like to make my own sauces and rubs. So ribs are one of my go-tos because I make the rub, I make the sauce, and, and I have fun smoking it. Um, but I also, a couple of years ago, started making my own sausage from scratch. Ooh, and I've had it. And it's really good. Mixing it up and getting it into that casing and everything. There's just something satisfying of going from these chunks of meat and veggies and everything that look like food, <laughs> and going into this through this whole process. You know, it's it's true. You don't want to see how the sausage is made, no, but when you're the you one don't. making it, it's so much fun. Yeah, ribs. Three, two, one. Three, two, one. You every do the time. three, two, one every so time. So do I. Yeah. I I learned that when I first got my Traeger five and a half, six years ago, and I will never do ribs another way again. 225? 225 for the two and the one. Mm. What about brisket? Are you you a firm believer in smoking it at 225 to temp, or are you a low and slow guy? So I, I typically do the first few hours on on smoke and then I go to 225 until it gets up to you know that 200 205 mark my my tip that nobody believes me on until they try it once it hits that instead of pulling it off resting it for a little while and smoking it it goes in two three four layers of aluminum foil and then in a bunch of layers of towels and it goes into a igloo cooler mm-hmm. with the whole thing filled with towels and i don't touch it for at least five or six hours and when it comes out it's still hot enough to to burn your fingers as you're cutting it up but every piece of fat in that thing has turned into liquid gold and it it's yeah i call that yeah. beef butter uh, we could talk about barbecue for hours because yeah, that could be another I, show i 
in the last few years, I've really gone a little bit deep in in trying different things at the barbecue. I've done a ton of ribs. Um, we just did a brisket for Christmas. Um, well, my brother did. Thanks, Troy. Um, but I I love barbecuing and the art of it. I just have a Weber, and I do low and slow on it. I do hot and fast. I, everything. Yeah, I um, accidentally uh, figured out a 24 or a 20 hour pork butt. So you came over to that Labor Day party. party. We had a big bash. We had a keg of beer and a ton of people there. So the first night was brisket. So the brisket was served and we had really amazing dishes there. And then the following night was going to be pork butt. So I had to get that pork butt on for the next day. But really, my recipe only called for eight hours. So it was going to be from 10 to 6. So in my mind, I I was thinking 10. I put it on at 10 p.m. and not 10 a.m. because I, you know, I don't know how many beers into my night I was, and then it, I like hit me like about an hour into the smoke. I'm like, oh crap, <laughs> I, this should have gone on 12 hours later. All I can do now is just like crank her down to like yeah. the lowest setting and let her rip and see what happens. And that pork butt, it was the best pork butt anybody at that barbecue had had up to that point. And uh, that's how I smoke my pork butts now. I put it at <laughs> 180 for 20 hours, and it just the, the like Aaron was saying, the fat just turns into like this butter, and just uh, so you good. made a mistake and it happened. Yeah, and it turned out great. That's the beauty of and the fun of cooking. It's all about making mistakes and learning from it, and you stumble into some yeah, pretty that, creative stuff. That's why I hate to bake. I, I don't like using recipes. Yeah, you know, I'll I'll look at a recipe to figure out, you know, maybe I should use some of these ingredients. But you know, I, I've tried baking that way. It it doesn't turn out well. I leave the baking to my wife, and I'll get out on the grill. So one one fun fact. So in college, all I ever heard about for like the first three years in college, my dad makes the best pizza in the world. Aaron's like, my dad's pizza is the best pizza in the world. And like in college, all you eat is pizza, right? So we've tried every pizza joint in town. And he kept saying, my dad makes the best pizza in the world. And I'm just like, yeah, whatever, you know. His dad finally came out and visited. I think it was our junior year. Might have been our sophomore year. No, I think it was our junior year. He came out and he made his pizza and it was like from scratch, like the dough was from scratch and everything. And it was like a deep dish and loaded with toppings. It was the best pizza I ever had. Aaron's dad's pizza is the best pizza in the world. So the secret is one of those deep dish pans that's like 16 or 17 inches and you use like three pounds of meat and three pounds of cheese. (laughs) So, I mean, it's a heart attack in a pan, but it's just meat and cheese and the sauce at the bottom and you know, it's you, you eat a slice and you feel like you just ate six or seven large pizzas from from yeah, any place. He cooked one pizza for like a group of college guys. I'm like, there's no way this is going to feed us. And how, how does he cook it? In in the oven, nice no? and slow, just long enough to make sure the bottom crust is isn't going to fall apart on you. And yeah, uh, I've made them in like a a normal like nine inch cake pan, and the thing still weighs like four pounds when I make them. <laughs> it, it is just a meat and cheese pie. Have you done a pizza on the Traeger? I have done pizzas on the Traeger, uh, pre, uh, par baking the the crust on the Traeger, topping them and putting them back out there. The 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 one you got to try though, chocolate chip cookies on the Traeger. Oh, really? Chocolate Smoke chip cookies chocolate. on the on the Traeger. You got to be careful. The edges of the Traeger get hotter than the rest. You wind up with some burnt cookies if you're not careful. But you smoke them on there, and then you hit them with a little bit of sea salt at the very end. Wow. My, the, the newest thing that I just found is smoked cream cheese. I haven't tried cream cheese. Oh, it's it's perfect to bring for a party if, if it's a potluck type of thing. I brought one to a party over uh, New Year's, 
and I I just put little scores in the top, and everybody thought it was um, halibut. They're like, that is that halibut? I'm like, oh man, I can't wait till they taste it. And then they taste it, and they're like, definitely not halibut. Everybody loves it. Just put your favorite seasoning on top, 225 for two hours, which you'd think it would just turn into a mess, but it just kind of opens up those scores and smoke cream cheese. I'm getting hungry just talking about this stuff right now. (laughs) This might, who knows, we might have an inspired like rib cook-off, an all-in uncensored rib cook-off. Get enough guests on here that are foodies. I'm in. I'm I'm going to whoop everybody, but I'm in. (laughs) Game on. So, Aaron, we want to thank you for being our guest on the show today. And, you know, to recap, you know, embracing the love. And what would what did you say the giving thing was? It was a giver's game. Giver's game. And then Ubuntu. And those philosophies are – that's what's going to allow you to thrive in what you're doing. And we couldn't be more excited to partner with you on this and have you as a guest on our show. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you coming on. Nice to meet you. It's another great day. It's another great day. It is another great day. 